Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue our study verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And again, in this section, chapter 12, 13, and 14, Paul's focus is to correct some misconceptions that the Corinthians have when it comes to the area of spiritual gifts. And so this morning, we begin in verse number 12, and I'll read through the first part of verse 31. Hear now the words of Scripture. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to answer a question. Can you see the Ink dot, I just drew on my hand from where you're sitting. Can't see it, can you? Some of you with better eyesight than most might be able to, but most can't. Another question. Is it easier to see my hands, my ears, of course my ears, uh, my nose, (laughs) my chin? Is it easier to see those things than it is to see this little dot on my hand? Of course. Now, although those other parts of my body are more visible, 
in 2012, a small portion of tissues on the inside of my heart, smaller than that dot, malfunctioned. It did not receive the electrical signal from my sinus node in my heart to beat. As a result, my heart started contracting prematurely, started beating. My heart started shooting out empty beats. Um, many, many per hour. In fact, I was having pre PVCs, preventricular contractions, uh, up to 41,000 a day. John Topkins said they'd never seen a number that high, but 41,000 times a day, my heart would shoot out empty beats prematurely. And come to find out that the reason it was doing that was because of a small portion of tissues on the inside of my heart that wasn't functioning properly. As a result, I was living on an effective heart rate of 31. I was exhausted all the time. I was tired. Get this. I even slept past 6 o'clock during that time. It was a miracle. Or actually, it wasn't a miracle. I was sick and didn't even realize it. But I learned something. That something so small, a part of my body, I'd never seen, I'd never looked at, I'd never even given a second thought to has the ability, when it is not functioning properly, to affect every other part of my body. Now, the other parts of my body that I see more regularly, think of more often, they have a function, but I learned that oftentimes it's the never seen, seldom thought about parts of my body that are essential to my body's function and my body's survival. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses the metaphor of a body when he speaks about the church. And he wants us to know this about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is not a building, but it is a body. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this body, being one, has many different members in that body. And those members serve by providing different functions for the body, and in order for the body to function properly, every member needs to do what every member is supposed to do. In fact, Paul uses this metaphor to emphasize the interdependence that exists in the church between one member and the other, and to call the entire body at Corinth to unity and to stop the discord and stop the division that had taken place in them. You see, in Corinth, what was going on is you had some members who thought they were superior to other members because of the spiritual gift they had been given. They looked down their long nose at other members as they puffed themselves up. On, on the contrary, there were some members in Corinth who saw themselves as inferior to some of the other members in Corinth. They looked at them and put them on a pedestal and they thought... That person is a much better Christian than me. That person is more significant than me. That person is a bigger asset to the church than what I am. And as a result, resentment, pride, discord, envy, and jealousy began to spread through the body of Corinth like a raging cancer, destroying the body the local body of Christ at Corinth. You know, the same warning exists for us today. 
The same truth applies to us at Lakeville today, and that is this. When we forget that every member is a crucial, vital member of the body of Christ, when we do not see ourselves as being an important part of the body of Christ, the same cancer that infected the body at Corinth will take grip on the body here. And it will spread through the fellowship. And the body at Lakeville will become ineffective. Our fellowship will be fractured. Our church will become uh, divided. And we will not glorify or honor Christ as we are supposed to glorify and honor Christ. You see, if I think I am superior to another member of this church because I have a more prominent role, because I'm seen more than other members of this church, then I am uh, filling this body with the cancer of pride and egotism. But at the same time, if I think I'm inferior to another member of this church because I'm not as, I don't have as prominent of a role as they do, I'm not seen as much as they're seen, then there holds out the potential that I can, I can fill this body with the cancer of envy and the cancer of jealousy, and do as much damage to the body as one who is filling it with pride. But when every member sees themselves and everyone else as integral parts, integral members of this one body, then what will happen is the body will function properly. The body will function as it's intended to function, and Christ will be honored and glorified thereby. Now, I think in order for us to understand this, we've got to have a change of mindset when it comes to the way we think about the church. Most of us grew up thinking that the church was a building. Where are you going today? I'm going to church today. Most of the time when we say that, we're talking about this white building that sits on the side of the road of 1090. That's what we're thinking about. But the church is not a building. We should say, I'm going to join with the church today because the church are the people who makes up the body. It is not a building. The church is God's people. It's not a place that we attend. It is a body of which we are a member. And the members of the church are not just people I go to church with. The members of the church are fellow members of the same body, and they provide life, they provide support, they provide help, to me, just as I provide the same to them. Well, that's what Paul wants the church at Corinth to understand. And that is my prayer that the church at Lakeville will understand as well. Because when we understand that, we then will be well on our way to being a God-glorifying, united body of believers. But how does it work? What do we need to understand? What do we need to know in order to see the church's proper function and to understand how the church is supposed to work. Well, Paul highlights three crucial truths here that we should know when he speaks to the church at Corinth and three truths that I think we have to implement, we have to acknowledge, we have to understand if we're going to be a unified church. And here's the first truth. In order to be a unified body, we must understand how the body is put together. How the body is put together in verses 12 through 13. Paul speaks of how God has orchestrated, organized 
the body of Christ. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to work backwards in these two verses. I want to look at verse 13 first, and then we'll back up to verse number 12, because when speaking about how the church is put together, how the body is put together, verse 13 highlights the formation of the church, how the church is formed. Look at what Paul says. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Do you remember when John the Baptist arrived in Matthew 3 in the gospel account? Do you remember what his message was? I baptize you with water, but there's coming one after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to unloose him. He's going to baptize you with two things. One, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, the fire baptism John was talking about is the baptism of judgment that takes place when unbelievers die. And they are immersed into the sufferings and into the torments of hell. That uh, as we baptize a believer in water and we cover them in water, so too unbelievers, whenever they die without Christ, they will suffer this eternal baptism of fire forever and ever. But Jesus comes not just as judge, but he also comes as Savior because John mentioned the Holy Spirit of God. He mentioned that Jesus will baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? It means that at the moment of conversion, that Christ baptizes spiritually the believer into the body of Christ. Jesus in this verse is the baptizer because John said he will baptize you. The Holy Spirit is the sphere into which we are baptized. Now, you say, I don't understand that. My response is, I don't either. I mean, I don't know how I can physically be here at Lakeville and yet spiritually be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now. But I believe it because Scripture says it. And so at the moment of conversion, when Christ places people into his body, he does so by baptizing them into the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if that is the case, and it is, there's some observations I want to make. It's not on the screen, but I want you to hear me out carefully. That this baptism takes place at conversion. It is not something we experience after conversion. Okay, uh, There are some who think that you get saved, you have your sins forgiven, and then later you seek a second blessing, and then you're baptized with the Holy Spirit of God later. But such is not the case. Because you cannot even be a part of the body apart from the Spirit's baptism in this passage of Scripture. You can't be saved apart from being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit then you are not saved and you need to be saved. Another observation I make is this, that this baptism is experienced by all believers and it's not a second blessing that only a selected, committed group of believers experience. So you see, the baptism in the Spirit is not something we pray for. It's not something we seek after. It's not something we desire because it is something that every believer receives at the moment of their conversion. So don't be intimidated by someone who says, have you received the baptism in the Spirit yet? The answer is yes, if you are saved. 
All right? If you are saved, then you have received this baptism because that's what places you in the body of Christ. And here's another observation I make. This baptism is not, underscore that, is not evidenced by speaking in tongues as some have you believe today. You know how I know that? Because Paul is 100% convinced in verse 13. For in one spirit we were, how many? All, A-double-L, all baptized into one body. Who receives the baptism in the spirit? All believers. Now here's the question. When you look down in verse number 30, when Paul's asking about the gifts, when Paul asks the question, do all speak in tongue with tongues? Do you know what the answer to that question is? No. No, they don't. In fact, if you go back up to uh, chapter 12 at the first section of this chapter, Paul says to another, in verse 10, to another various kinds of tongues. He doesn't say to all. Now, it just stands to reason that if speaking in tongues was evidence of receiving the baptism in the Spirit, and if every believer has been baptized in the Spirit, then every believer ought to have to speak in tongues. But Paul says that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. Because not this gift that God gave to the early church, it wasn't given to everybody. But the Holy Spirit was. And the Holy Spirit is. And thus, speaking in tongues is not a sign of receiving the Holy Spirit of God. So we are all baptized into the Spirit. That's who places us into the body of Christ. But Paul also wants us to know that we partake of the Spirit. Not only does he say that we were baptized into one body, but also at the end of verse 13, he says we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That phrase, made to drink, literally means to be drenched with. He's saying that Jesus not only placed us into the sphere of the Holy Spirit of God, but he has completely drenched us in the Spirit of God, poured out his Spirit upon us. Do you remember when Jesus at the, at the feast in John 7 stands up about the time in the feast that they were pouring out the water and they would, they would be praying uh, Isaiah? Jesus stands up and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I'll give him drink and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And then John says, This Jesus said to them about the Spirit of God who he will give to all of those who believe in him. The idea is that when we are saved, we are not only placed into a body of the, the Christ's body by the Spirit, but also we are indwelt by the Spirit. We are covered by the Spirit. Christ's Spirit is poured out upon us. And we will never, ever have more of the Holy Spirit than we did at the moment we were saved. It's impossible. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead. And when we are saved, He takes up His abode in our heart and in our life. And we will never have more of the Holy Spirit than what we did at the moment in which we were saved. As a matter of fact, John 3.34 says this about Jesus. He does not give His Spirit by measure. You know what that means? He doesn't give you an eighth of the Spirit, then another eighth, and then another eighth until you finally have all of the Spirit. No. He gives you himself in the person of the Holy Spirit 
of God. So if you're saved, you have all the Holy Spirit you are ever going to have. Now you say, what? how come the Bible says to be filled with the Spirit then? Well, being filled with the Spirit is something completely different. Being filled with the Spirit has nothing to do with how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but it has everything to do with how much of you the Holy Spirit has. It has to do with how much you have yielded yourself to the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you have more of the Holy Spirit. No. It's just that you are yielding your flesh more to the Holy Spirit through the Spirit of God. So Paul starts out and he wants us to know this thing called the church. It is not a man-made invention. It's not something we just conjure up. No, it's the body of Christ. And if you're saved, you are a member of that body, baptized into it, filled and drenched with the Spirit of God, and you are a spiritual Christian. But then Paul wants us to understand the function of the body. In verse verse 12, look what he says. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Do you think Paul's trying to make a point here? You notice he, he, he speaks about the singular body, but yet the plural members. And he's saying that all the different members come together and are united together, joined together by God to make the one singular body. And the truth of the matter is, Paul is reminding us that there is just one church. Just one church. Not two churches, not three churches. Our Lord is not a polygamist. (laughs) He has one bride. And it is his church. And that one church is made up of many different individuals. Whether they be Jew or Greek or slave or free. Your nationality, your social status has no bearing. All who trust in Christ have been placed into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the church is put together. That's how the body's put together. Now, when you understand how the body is put together by a sovereign act of God, whereby Christ baptizes us into the Holy Spirit of God, making us one body, it's then we can appreciate the second truth Paul shows us. And that is how the members fit together. We not only need to see how the body is put together, we now need to see how the members fit together. Now what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to step in. He's going to go from looking at the forest to now he's going to look at the trees. And he's going to show us how each individual member in this body contributes to the body of Christ. And he reminds us in verses 14 through 20 that all members are integral. All members of the body of Christ are integral members of the body of Christ. And they're integral because first, every member provides a a crucial function for the body. You know, no body consists of just one member. It doesn't. Nobody just consists of one member. You know, I I joke all the time, say I'm all ears, but thank God there's more to me than just just ears. Uh, And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 14. He says, does the body not consist of one member but of many? Your body isn't just fingers. Your body isn't just eyes. Your body just isn't ears. Your body is the bringing together of many different members into one singular body. In fact, Paul in verse 
15 and verse 16 is showing us that all members belong. Because he says the foot, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. What's he saying? Paul is here addressing some members in Corinth who were feeling inferior to others. They were looking at other people and they think, you know what? They've got a better spiritual gift than I've got. They, they, they might be more pro, have a more prominent role in the church than what I have. And so I look around at this church at Corinth and I'm thinking, you know what? I, I'm, I'm seldom seen, seldom heard. I really don't have much to offer. So I really don't belong here. Now, have you ever felt that way when it comes to a church? Now, maybe you haven't felt that way, but I guarantee you there may be some who feel that way. Uh, There may be some who feel that they just do not belong. I don't belong because I can't sing like that member. I don't belong because I don't know the Bible as well as that member knows the Bible. I don't belong because I can't play an instrument uh, like, like he can play an instrument. I don't belong because I can't organize like that member can. Oh, I don't belong here because I haven't, I haven't been a Christian near as long as that person's been a Christian. So, you know what? I just don't belong in this local assembly. That's exactly what the devil wants you to think. That's exactly what he wants you to think. Because what happens then is you, not only do you start feeling jealousy and envy maybe toward another member, before long you'll get lost in your own self-pity and you'll become discouraged and you'll wonder why in the world do I even worry why do I even try what's the use I just don't belong but Paul says stop yes you do yes you do you provide a crucial function for the body you belong and you are needed because Christ does not clone members he made you unique for a reason And the reason he made you unique was so that you could serve and function properly in the body. Paul uses the illustration. You know, the foot shouldn't feel inferior to the hand. The eye shouldn't feel inferior to the eye because each provides a function. Paul asked this question in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? You don't smell with your ears. You don't... You don't hear with your eyes. No, each part provides a crucial function. And furthermore, furthermore, not only do you provide a crucial function, and here could be the most important truth to see, it's that every member is placed in the body by God. Look what he says in verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As he chose. You're here because of a sovereign act of a sovereign God. And he chose it to be that way. That's what Paul's saying. And if God chose to give me the gift he gave me. And God chose to put me in the body he put me in. Locally speaking. Then is my feeling of being inferior. Is that not an offense to the sovereign act? Of God. Isn't that me saying to God. You made a mistake. Because you put me in a body. That I really don't belong in. God forgive us. For that. But no. We have to understand. That that God has placed 
each individual in the body as it has pleased him. In verse 20 is a reminder, there are many parts and yet one body. But also we need to know that all members are interdependent. We're not only integral, but we are interdependent. In verse 21 through 26, every member provides a crucial function for the body and no member has the right to feel superior. You know, in verse 14 through 20, the member of the body is feeling inferior, like they don't belong. But in verses 21 through 26, the member of the body is feeling superior, as if they don't need other parts of the body. Listen to what Paul says. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. What's he saying? He's saying how audacious, how prideful it is. For one part of my body to say to another part of my body, I don't need you. No, all of my body needs all the parts of my body in order for it to function properly. And as a matter of fact, Paul's going to use this illustration in verse 22. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. What's he saying here? Paul is saying the way our body functions, it's it's funny. It's kind of strange. Uh, You know, my, my arm can probably take a lick that if a vital organ of my body took on the outside of my body, I, I couldn't survive. But a skeletal system could, can take it. Uh, you get, you know, you get hit an arm, break your arm with such, such force, you get hit with an internal organ that way, you may be dead or you may, you may need surgery or something like that. And here's what he's saying. He's saying even in the way we cover ourselves, our, he's talking here about the person's privates. What do we do with our privates? He said we cover them up. We are modest about them. Is the fact that we cover them up mean that we don't, we, 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 we don't value them? No, Paul says it's because we value them we cover them up. And he's saying so it is with the body of Christ that oftentimes it's those who are unseen, those who are seldom thought of, that are crucial and critical to the body of Christ. That's his point. You need one another to function properly. And thus, Paul says, here's the reason why, in verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, verse 25, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffers together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that being a part of the body means this. If one part of your body hurts, you know what the rest of your body ought to do as well? ought to hurt. Listen, I've had a stinking crick in my neck for three weeks. It's killed me. And and putting a Christmas tree up, I got it hung back in the storage room and about ripped my shoulder off, and it's absolutely killed me. And you know what? The rest of my body has suffered as a result of that. Uh, I've slept on one side instead of the other side. Uh, I've, uh, uh, I've, I've tried everything in the world. Thank goodness this is the first morning in three weeks I woke up and didn't have any pain. So uh, that, that's good. Uh, but, but isn't it amazing? My shoulder hurt. The rest of my body hurt. Last night, eating 
chicken wings watching Kentucky play ball. I took a bite and lo and behold, I about bit my jaw off. I'm tell- I almost cried. If I hadn't been in, pu- in amongst company, I probably would have. You know what? That part of my body hurt. <laughs> Rest of my body was almost paralyzed from the pain. That's the point Paul is making here. We should be so interconnected that when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. When one of us rejoices, we should all rejoice. Do you know what builds fellowship in a church? What builds strength in a church? Oh, I am not minimizing the role of worship in the church. This is the most important thing we will do all week right here this morning, hearing God's word proclaimed and preached. Most important thing we'll do all week. But I'll tell you where fellowship's built in the church. It's built in nurseries. When people welcome new children into the world and you're there to weep with them and cry with them and, and rejoice with them. It's there during promotions where you encourage and you rejoice with someone who things seem to be going well for them and you're glad for them. It takes place in ICUs where they don't know if their loved one's going to live or not. You cry with them. You pray with them. You hug them. It's at funeral homes when you can't come up with the right words to say. But you know what? All you can do is hurt for that member of the body who's hurting. People ask me all the time, what do you say to people? My response is, there's nothing you can say. All you can do is weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Because when a member of my body is hurting, I should hurt as well. And when things are going good in the body, I should feel well as well. Let me ask you something. Do you grieve with a member who's hurting because they've got a rebellious teenager? Do you rejoice when that couple who has been praying for a child for years finally gets the pregnancy test positive? Do you bear the burden with the couple who prayed for years to have a child and yet the pregnancy test is still negative? Do you hurt when you hear that one of ours has been diagnosed with cancer? Do you feel the tension when someone you have worshipped with is at heaven's door getting ready to be ushered into the presence of God? Where you hurt and grieve from a loss in this world, but yet there is rejoicing in your heart because their faith will soon be turned to sight? Beloved, that's what being a church is about. That's what being a body is. Is about. It's about being interdependent. Listen, it means that everybody in this building needs you. And it means that you need everybody else in this building. And thus, that's how the members fit together to make up one body. Now, how does God fit all of these different types of people and all these different members together into one body. Well, here comes the third truth. Paul wants us to see how it happens because he says we need to understand how our gifts work together. Not only how the body fits together, not only do we need to know how the members uh, are put together, the members fit together, we also need to know how our gifts work together. Because the way God takes individual members and makes them into one body is by dispensing different spiritual gifts to each individual member so that the body functions 
properly and our unity comes from our diversity when it is brought together to honor God. You see, verses 27 through 31 show us first that each member is unique because of spiritual gifts. Verse 27, Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Do you see what he does right here with that one sentence? He shows us both the individual aspect of being a Christian. You are uh, individual members. But he also shows us the corporate aspect of it. What are we? We are the body of Christ. I get tickled at people all the time. Actually, I don't get tickled. I'm burdened for people all the time who said they don't need the church. I don't need the church. Well, what happens if I cut my finger off? You know what? My index finger needs the rest of my body. It needs it. No. Paul says we are the body of Christ. We are individually members of it. And as a result, God has gifted members to function together. Now, what he does here is he's going to give us a list of some gifts. As I said last week, this list is not exhaustive. Uh, you read of other lists in Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, and earlier in, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, where he mentions gifts. Some of these gifts, I hold, have ceased with the apostles. Uh, other gifts, I think, are still operational today, uh, not necessarily the sign gifts, but uh, what are the gifts he mentions here? Well, first he mentions three people in verse 28. He says God has appointed in the church first apostles, and then uh, second prophets, third teachers. Okay, first apostles. Who were the apostles? Well, an apostle was someone who had seen the risen Savior with their natural eye. Not some vision, but they had seen Jesus after he had been resurrected. Uh, the Apostle Paul's clear. He was the last one to ever see Jesus in that manner. Um, and John on the Isle of Patmos, but he had already seen the res resurrected Lord. But uh, it was someone who had seen the resurrected Lord, who had learned from him, and who was commissioned by him. And thus, there are no apostles today. Someone tells you today they're an apostle, you mark them as a false apostle <laughs> because there are no apostles today. As a matter of fact, do you remember when Judas hung himself and he died? Do you remember what God told the other 11 to do? Right, let somebody else take his office. Right, so they cast lots. Matthias gets the office. All right, he replaces one who had died with Matthias. What happens when other apostles start to die? The book of Acts. James dies. Does God tell them, oh, uh, that apostle died, let's replace him with another apostle? No, they don't replace him anymore, do they? And when the last apostle dies, that was it. Because the apostles were the foundation upon which the early church was built. Okay, So there are no apostles today, but the apostles served a foundational function in the early church. Secondly, we have prophets. Again, the role of prophecy in the New Testament as the word of God is going forward is different than what some people think. They didn't have a 66-book Bible to pack around with them to say, thus says the word of God. No. So what would happen is the Holy Spirit would, would inspire or the Holy Spirit would speak through a, a person, a prophet at the time, and God would give revelation to that prophet to speak 
the gospel, to speak the mysteries of Christ. Well, we do not need the Holy Spirit to give us new revelation today because he's given us all the revelation he's ever going to give us when he gave us the word of God. Someone said, oh, I, I just wish God would speak to me and I wish he would speak to me in an audible voice. R.C. Sproul, who's now in heaven, once said, if you want God to speak to you audibly, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> I mean, he'll do it. That's how he does it. All right. So, so this foundational, this gift is also a foundational gift that as the gospel's going forward, the word of God's being read, God blessed people with the ability to speak the revelation of God's gospel to others. Um, then thirdly, we're teachers. And of course, teachers, they have the gift to teach the gospel, to, to proclaim the gospel, to teach others clearly, concisely what Scripture says. Then Paul moves from the people to five other gifts. Uh, the first gift he mentions, the gift of miracles. Um, again, from last week, God bore witness to the gospel as the gospel's going forward with signs, miracles, and different gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. Meaning that as the gospel went forward, one of the ways God said to the people hearing the message that this is indeed true is through the power displayed in the miracles. Now, let me ask you this. How do you know what I'm telling you is true today? Do I have to uh, perform a miracle for you to know whether or not I'm telling you the truth? The answer is no. No. God no longer verifies his message through miracles because he has given us the full canon of scripture and the word of God and you know that I'm telling you the truth now because it comes from God's word. The second gift was the gift of healing or the gifts of healing, excuse me, that uh, there were people that God gave the ability to, to heal others with. Now, this gift was not something that people God in the early church, and they called a crusade together, got all the wheelchairs up on the stage, and, and uh, started knocking people out with their white coats. That's not what the gift was about. Not at all. I think Paul had this gift. But you know what? God was in charge of its use, not Paul. Think about it. Paul heals a man at Lystra in Acts 14. Acts 28, he uh, heals the father of the host of the house that he's staying with in Malta. And in Acts 28, all manners of sick and diseased people come to Paul and they are healed. Sounds good. But you know what? Epaphroditus, Paul's dear friend in Philippians 2, he was on death's door. Paul didn't heal him. What about Timothy, that young preacher who had stomach problems? Did Paul lay his hands on him and heal him? No. He said, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. In other words, take some medicine for what ails you. What about himself? Did Paul heal himself? No. Whatever his thorn in the flesh was, he prayed three times and God basically told him, I'm not removing it because I am giving you more grace to endure it than, it would, than, than, than what you would need if I would remove it. And then when Paul enters the, the last chapter of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, what does he tell Timothy about poor old Trophimus? I left him ill at Miletus. Wait a minute. Paul left him ill? Paul, why didn't you lay your hands on him and heal him? If it's God's will, everybody be healed. 
You know why? Because it boils down to this. There's one person in charge of healing and one person alone, and it's not me, it's not you, it's not Benny Hinn, God forbid, it's not any, any other televangelist, false prophet. No, it's God and God alone. Now, do I believe God heals? Absolutely I believe God heals. But the very fact that it's a miracle means it's rare. It's rare. So, so there's gifts of healing. Then he mentions the gifts of helping. Some believe, because of the Greek word here, that it's attached to the work of a deacon. In other words, helping those who are less fortunate, helping those who are, of a, who are socially disadvantaged, having a heart for the poor, having a heart for those who, who don't have much stuff in this world. That is a gift from God. Fourthly, he mentions here the gift of administrating. Uh, there are just some people that God has gifted with the ability to organize, set a direction, and get a group of people to, to meet that goal. I put it this way. God gives them the ability to strategize, organize, and energize. And, and they're able to do it. It is a gift from God. And then lastly, do you know what Paul mentions lastly? Paul mentions various kinds of tongues. Now here's what's interesting. Again, the gift of tongues was, again, like I said last week, it's not some type of heavenly language. It's not some unknown language. It was, it was a known language that God blessed people who had never studied that language before to be able to speak in order to further and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know what gift the Corinthians thought was the most important of all? Tongues. You know what gift Paul seem to always list last on the list at Corinth? Tongues. As a matter of fact, he ranks these. First, you have apostles. Second, you have prophets. Third, you have teachers. And all the way down, last on the totem pole, tongues. Tongues. You know what the Corinthians valued the least? Apostles. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4, Paul has to correct the way they think about apostles. And Paul, in his sarcastic tone of voice, says, Oh, yeah, never mind, I forgot. We're all fools. What do we know? Who are we? We're just apostles. And he has to defend his ministry. And yet, he wants them to know what they have done is they have taken a good gift from God and they've elevated it to a place that it ought not be and they had made an idol out of tongues. Thus, next uh, two weeks from now, when we get into chapter 14, we'll see how they were, how it had caused complete chaos in the body of Christ. But the point of this is don't forget. It's that we're all unique. Look what he asked in verse 29. Are all apostles? And the answer is what? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. No. Listen. Christian, quit trying to be a clone of some other Christian. It's not God's will for you to be a clone of another Christian. Sure, we can say, follow me as I follow Christ in that manner. But if you are just trying to be a clone of somebody else, then you are removing the God's sovereign act of gifting you with something you can use to serve the body of Christ with. So we are unique because of spiritual gifts, but we, the body then is united because of spiritual gifts. Why does God give different gifts to different people? Again, I go back to verse 25, what he says, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. 
there's beauty, there's harmony, and there's glory when members function together in one body. And when the bodies function properly, there's no room for jealousy, there's no room for envy, there's no room for superiority, pride, divisions. You know what I've learned? It's difficult to be divided against somebody you've laughed and cried with. Somebody you've suffered with. Somebody you've rejoiced with. It's difficult to feel superior to somebody else when you know you need that person. And it's difficult to feel inferior to somebody else when you know that person needs you. So here's what I want you to do. I've, I've, I've never asked, I, as far as I remember, in 17, six, 17 years of being your pastor, I don't ever remember asking you to repeat after me. But I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. This isn't the invitation. I'm not asking you to repeat a prayer. But I want you to say something. Two things. One, I need my church. Say that. I need my church. Say it again. I need my church. Secondly, my church needs me. My church needs me. Again, my church needs me. The reason you need your church is because the other members of this church supply something for you. And the reason your church needs you is because you supply something for everybody else in this church. Martin Luther, commenting on this, said, The sun does not say that it is black. The tree does not say, I bear no apples, pears, or grapes. That is not humility. But if you have gifts, you should say, these gifts are from God. I did not confer them upon myself. One should not be puffed up on their account. If someone else does not have the gifts I have, then he has others. If I exalt my gifts and despise another's, that is pride. The sun does not vaunt himself, but says, Although tree, you do not shine. I will not despise you, for you're green. And I will help you to be green. Let's pray.